You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will discuss Unsolved Mysteries, Season 1, Episode 3, hosted by Robert Stack. This episode, I've renamed No Style, No Class, and Other Digs. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. So glad to have you guys back, and if you're new, welcome. Um, I want to thank you all for being so understanding of missing last week, last Saturday, which was the day that I had set aside to write this episode. My husband and I realized that it would be um, our last weekend that we had with our daughter before she began in-person learning. Um, For the past year, she's been doing online distance learning, and so around like 11 o'clock in the morning, we looked at each other and we were like, crap, we should do something. (laughs) So we packed up our car and we went on a little day trip. It was so nice to get out into the desert and have some fun. For me, when things and life get a little chaotic, nature always helps me to recenter and refocus. I don't want to sleep in nature though. (laughs) I don't like camping. I just want to be like out amongst it for a little bit and then come home and take a shower and sleep in a bed. Um, I was texting a friend um, who knew that I was going to Goblin Valley. Oh yeah, that's where we went by the way. It's a little state park in Utah with like hundreds and hundreds of hoodoos in it. And anyways, I texted her that since it was a little windy that day, I had gotten sand stuck in my lip gloss and she laughed about me wearing lip gloss to the desert. (laughs) But I feel like it just goes to show you that you can take the girl out of the city, but you can't take the city out of the girl. (laughs) Well, anyway, I'm so excited to be back here with you and discuss true crime. And what better way to return than with a cameo of my boyfriend, my number one, Mr. Robert Stack. Although, (sighs) Robbie, 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 he had some weird wardrobe things going on in this episode honey whoever dressed you for this episode should be at the very least shot (laughs) how they got him to wear those episodes is actually the true unsolved mystery of this episode just kidding um and i hope that those that uh costume designer or like whoever dressed him was fired because it really was ridiculous don't worry i'm gonna post the funky outfit that i'm referring to on our instagram at mystery still unsolved shameless plug whatever it's my podcast and i'll do whatever i please no shame if you are not already following me on instagram you should be i post polls in the stories and pictures on the feed you can comment your theories ideas thoughts about the episode you can dm me a suggestion of a case to cover and i'll give you a shout out you can get updates about cases that we've discussed before their first 
as well. If you're already following me on Instagram and you just can't get enough of me, you can visit our website at www.mysterystillunsolved.com. You can listen to my episodes there. You can read my scripts that I use when hosting this episode just to get a little behind the scenes action if you're into that. Um, And one day, I don't know when, I mean, there's like nothing in the works currently, but we're probably going to sell some merch at some point. Um, You can also sign up for our monthly newsletters that will get sent straight to your email. Lots of fun things in the making. So that's that. Um, If you like the podcast and the episodes that I've created for your ears delight, uh, please leave me a review, follow me on Instagram, and or tell a friend, further true crime lover, you know the whole deal. Anyway, end of my shameless plug promotion. Um, I love when we cover Unsolved Mysteries episodes from back in the day because we get the unique opportunity to delve into four unique cases. So without further delay, let's get to it. At the start of the episode, Robbie, yeah, I call him Robbie. We're That's just the kind of relationship that we have because we're in a long-term relationship after all. Um, Robbie is wearing his usual garb of white shirt tie and long dark trench coat as it should be. So I haven't been thrown for a loop quite yet, but don't worry. It's coming. Our first story is one revolving around amnesia. On February 19th, 1982, on a quiet residential street in Woonsocket, yeah, that's a real city apparently, Woonsocket, Rhode Island, um, this usually peaceful community, um, there was a savage murder occurring, and it's actually the most savage murder that they've ever had in their history. So around 3.30 in the afternoon, Doug Heath came home from work to his apartment on Province Street. As he walked in the door, he noticed Nicole, and they say Nicole. I don't know if that's like how she actually says her name or if it's just like a Rhode Island accent thing, but I'll call her Nicole. Um, Nicole was three years old, and she was just sitting on the stairs in the hallway locked out of her apartment, which immediately tipped Doug off that something was not quite right. Um, I'm going to play a clip of Doug and Maybe I just haven't been around many Rhode Islanders in my life, but the accent to me is so interesting. I, I'm i going to try to describe it, but it's honestly just so unique that I don't feel like I'm going to do it justice, so that's why I'm going to play a couple of clips. Um, the Rhode Island accent to me, to my very amateur, untrained ears, has like a foundation of Bostonian with like a smorgasbord of Jersey and New York and Chicago like sprinkled on top. Anyway, that's why I'm going to play you the clip because it's just way too hard for me to describe accurately. So let's listen to that now. When I saw Nicole standing on the stairs, I knew immediately something was wrong. Where's mommy? I asked her where her mother was and she told me that she was downstairs lying down. I tried the door into the first floor apartment, their apartment, and it was locked. I knew something was was wrong right there. Okay, so do you see what I mean? It's like really, really unique, isn't it? So I looked up the difference, because I'm just crazy like that, between the Bostonian accent and the Rhode Island one, because I'm just 
obsessed with accents. And while they are very similar, there are slight differences. So if you're curious, I'm going to tell them now. And if you're not curious, too dang bad. It's my podcast, whatever. So for example, a Bostonian would say, pock the ka. And I think we've all heard that, right? Especially like if you watch Family Guy, you've heard Peter Griffin say, pock the ka. But a Rhode Islander would say, pock the caw. So do you hear that? It's more of like a W sound at the end. In Boston, you would say ride a hoss, but in Providence, you would say ride a hoss. See, there's that W again. So there's a little accent knowledge for you. Not sure if you necessarily wanted it, but you're welcome nonetheless. Okay, so Doug tries the apartment door and it's locked, so he heads down to the basement where the communal laundry room is, Um, and he finds Susan Laferte and another body of a woman he did not immediately recognize. It appeared that both women had been violently bludgeoned to death, and he immediately sought help. Um, In another article that I read, it said that the two women were bludgeoned so badly that initially when police came to the scene, they assumed that both of the women had been shot in the face. So yeah, bad, bad, really, really bad. So while listening to Doug's account of the discovery, I thought, oh my gosh, what a traumatic thing for Doug to stumble across. But then in my mind, it raced back to the quote in the clip that I showed you when Doug says that he asked Nicole where her mother was and Nicole says that she was lying down. And the little girl saying that her mom is lying down in the laundry room? No, 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 no. Never a good sign. That means Nicole went downstairs looking for her mother and came upon this gruesome scene with her three-year-old baby eyes, and that to me is heartbreaking. I don't know. Maybe it's just because I have a child of similar age, or maybe it's just because I'm like a decent human being, but no one should ever have to see something like that, but especially not someone that young and impressionable. Now we meet Sergeant Doug Connell. One woman expired at the scene, and the other one was in very, very critical condition. Rescue stabilized her the best that they could and transported her from the scene to the hospital emergency room. All right. First of all, are we ever going to get to a point in time where in cop talk, cop lingo, we can stop talking about human beings like they're gallons of milk? A woman died. She did not expire like your favorite brand of 2%. And two, I cannot believe with the extent of the injuries that one of the women lived. It's insane to me. I mean, don't get me wrong. Obviously, I'm elated that one of the women survived. I'm just extremely shocked. Both of the women lived in the apartment building. 22-year-old Doreen Picard was pronounced dead at the scene, but Susan Laferte, Nicole's mom, was alive. Susan was in surgery for two and a half hours. Susan's husband, Ernie, said the doctors told him that Susan was hanging on by a thread. The injuries were so severe that during surgery, they lost her a few times, but were able to successfully bring her back. While Susan survived her attack, she remained in a deep coma. Now, all investigators could do was continue to work the scene and hope that when Susan woke up, she would be able to provide them with answers about her attacker, that would lead them to the murderer. 
Fearful for Susan's safety, she was guarded by police at, in her hospital room 24-7. It was obvious to us that the perpetrator, in his mind, had left both girls for dead. We immediately became worried that he would realize that there was a witness to the attack and that he would come back and try to eliminate that witness by killing her. We were hopeful that when she came out of the coma, she would be able to tell us who it was that had done this. Again, do you see where I'm coming from with the accent? Did you hear Sergeant Connell say Comer instead of coma? That's just so interesting to me. And honestly, I hope that this is not being received and that I'm making fun of the accent. I actually really love accents like it's a problem in fact sometimes when I'm watching a documentary or a TED talk or whatever and I hear an interesting accent I play a game because I'm a loser where I try to guess what the accent is and then after I kind of lock in my answer I google stock the crap out of that person until I figure out what their accent is so yeah, okay, this is actually way off topic, but one time my husband and I were watching a conference on TV and this man came on the screen and he had like this crazy unique accent. It sounded Spanish, but also like a hint of like European, like kind of like Mediterranean with a hint of Scottish. And I was so intrigued by it. So I told my husband my predictions. I was like, I bet you he's Argentinian because that's kind of like South American and Italian sounding. And then I also think that there's like a sprinkle of Scottish in there. So I locked in my answers and then I Googled, researched the poop out of him until I learned that his dad was from Argentina, which is a South American country, but it was settled by Italians. Hello. And his mom was Scottish. Bingo. Holla. And that's my hidden talent. One of my many hidden talents. <laughs> Robert Stack returns to tell us that Susan remained in her coma for 30 days. 30 days. But when she finally emerged from it, she was not able to provide any answers that would aid the police's investigation. Susan was suffering from amnesia due to her injuries. She couldn't remember anything before January 1st of that year. A whole month and 19 days of her life just gone from her memory. And now, now we're going to talk about Robbie's outfit in this scene. He comes around the corner of this hospital hallway looking like a two-year-old on Easter Sunday. He is wearing a dark brown velvet cropped blazer. Who, how did this get past editing? Didn't someone see this outfit and say, uh, this is kind of off-brand. How'd they go and do Robbie like that? Shameful. Now investigators were back to square one. Everyone expected me to wake up and tell them who attacked me and killed Doreen. I don't know who attacked us. I have no idea. It's five years later, and I'm no closer at this period of time than I was five years ago. I don't know what he looked like um, or anything else about him. I have no memory whatsoever of the attack. 
At the time of this episode was released, it had only been a couple of years, so obviously Susan still feared for her life and her safety, so she requests to not be identified on camera. Susan continues that she is no closer to identifying the man now than she was years ago. She talks about feeling paranoid a lot at the time because she doesn't know if the attacker was a man or a woman. She doesn't know what they sound like or look like. She doesn't know if it was a stranger or someone that she knew or someone that she like still hanging out with. When she walks on the street, she worries if she passes them by unknowingly. What a seriously scary thought to just not know anything. Police searched for a motive. Susan Laferte was a housewife with two children. She was an active member of her neighborhood watch. Doreen was studying childhood development in college. Ironically, Doreen was actually planning on moving out the very day that she was murdered. Like Susan, Doreen's parents desperately want to know who killed their daughter. On February 19th, Susan had lunch with her sister, Carol Levette. So this is the day of the attack. Around 1.30, two friends of Susan's came to the door. Hi. Hi, My sister came back from the doorway and stuck her head in the parlor and said, Carol, I'm going downstairs. I'll be right back. She came back upstairs and I could hear her talking to somebody in the doorway. So I got up to go see who she was talking to. To get hints from him. Hi. Yeah. Hi. I knew one of the guys, but the other guy I didn't know and she introduced me to him. Ten minutes later, at 1.45, Carol went home. That was the last time anyone saw Susan before the attack. No one can be sure what happened that day between 1.45 and 3.20 when Doug discovered Susan and Doreen in the laundry room. Sergeant Connell said he was shocked by the initial scene. He says the brutality of the assault, it was not just a murder. It was not just an assault. It was a frenzied attack. It was overkill. This is a good clue, though. Frenzied attacks and overkill usually indicate that the person knew their victims, or at least the intended victim. Doreen was attacked much more brutally than Susan, but that's not really saying too much, and they were both brutally attacked. This may indicate that Doreen may have been the intended victim, the main target, and perhaps Susan just happened to be there. Because the attack was frenzied, is it possible that Susan walked in on the attack of Doreen and startled the killer, or vice versa, um, causing him to change his plans and kill the other? Only one other person alive saw the killer, Susan's three-year-old daughter, Nicole. She was in the apartment that afternoon. Her grandmother attempted to help Nicole answer the police officer's questions. Nicole says that she actually was the one who let the man into the apartment complex because she thought it was her mother's friend. Nicole says the man was probably a little bit taller than her own father. He had a mustache and that he wore a baseball hat backwards with a shirt and jeans. So we know that he's a tool. Nicole told her grandmother that she could hear her mother crying, so she went downstairs, and as she went down, the man was coming up the stairs. He had a rag in his back pocket that she described as being white with red polka dots. We now know that this was the rag used to clean the murder weapon and that those red polka dots were actually bloodstains. Then the man left out the front door. The man left behind the murder weapon and bloody rag behind a closet door, which was not found for four days. 
four days. Seems a little long to me. I mean, it's not like the murderer really hid it all that well. Behind a closet door? It's not like he threw it down a storm drain. Come on, Sergeant Connell. What were your guys doing for four days other than twiddling your thumbs waiting for Susan to wake up? After the assault, Nicole was questioned extensively by the police department. As much as the police would like to have a person who definitely saw the perpetrator that day, her story has changed too much to be of real value to us. The stress and confusion that she was under at that point in time really made it very difficult to get a real solid, sure story. It's a complex case because of the different factors involved. First, we have two victims. And those victims all bring their individual traits with them. They have their own friends. Uh, they were involved in different things. There was also two newspaper ads that had been running. One was for puppies for sale, and the other was for an apartment for rent. The perpetrator might have responded to one of the ads, was a friend of either one of the victims or their family, or was just a total stranger. This makes a lot of sense. Nicole was just a little baby, three years old. That's like six months older than my son, and I guarantee you that Vance would not be able to like tell you anything about anything. Um, I also see where they're coming from about there just being so many variables when it comes to pinning down a motive and a person of interest in this case. I mean, when you're trying to sell your lease, you get a lot of people coming by to see your apartment and someone who came to see it may have been there with nefarious intent maybe scoping out the place. Also, when you're selling puppies, you get even more people. As the families of the two women have attempted to get some justice and closure on the case, they have received numerous phone calls from an anonymous caller telling them to stand down and stop looking. A few months after Doreen was killed, I received a phone call about 2 a.m. He said that I should be concerned with my family and my children and not pursue the matter. Uh, so hard and that for openers they might burn my garage down my repair shop every time we pursue the matter we get phone calls obviously we're putting somebody uneasy we're, we're, we're keeping somebody off guard update on this case breaking news um an update states that Raymond Tempest was convicted in the brutal slaying of Doreen Picard and the attempted murder of Susan Laferte. But the good news is extremely short-lived because it's followed by the terrible news that although he was sentenced to 85 years in prison, somehow this guy has since been released. And that's all the info that the episode gives. So y'all know I had to do do some Googling and figure out why on earth something like this would happen. And what was his apparent motive for committing these heinous acts? All right. So the family and friends who came to look at the puppies were Raymond Beaver Tempest, Beaver is in quotes, who had family connections to the police department at the time. It's believed that he used those connections to avoid jail time for so long. It's also believed that Raymond and Sue may have been having an affair and that he returned to Susan's house after her sister left to continue their affair. And then subsequently, um, they got into a heated argument that turned physical. It's believed that Doreen was murdered because she walked in on the attack. In 1991, Raymond was indicted in Doreen's death, but could not be charged with the attempted death of Susan because the statute of limitations was up. Because apparently 
if you try to kill somebody, but you fail, then you can't be charged for that after like a couple of years, which is ridiculous. Uh, The evidence was pretty damning against Raymond or Beaver, whatever you prefer. The testimony of four witnesses said that they actually overheard Raymond telling others that he had been involved in the murder and the attack. Lisa Wells, a teenage girl at the time who lived in the apartment complex, she was actually the stepdaughter of the guy who found Nicole in the hallway. Um, She said that when she got home from school, she noticed a maroon car that was parked outside the building. And although Raymond didn't own a maroon sedan, he was actually known to borrow one from time to time from a friend. When Doug came home, he did not see that maroon sedan. So it's quite possible that when Lisa came home from school, the murderer was still down in the basement. Initially, when Raymond was brought in for questioning, he lied about his whereabouts that afternoon. He had claimed that um, he had been doing something else because he had really been trying to like acquire some coke and he didn't want to own up to it and embarrass his police-affiliated family um, and, you know, taint their good name. While in prison, Raymond reached out to the Innocence Project. The Innocence Project looked into the case and discovered that there really wasn't any physical evidence connecting Raymond to the crime. And, I mean, you'd think that if someone has bludgeoned two ladies supposedly to their deaths, some of the killer's DNA would probably be around, but none was found. The wound socket police did a really, really bad job securing the scene, apparently. Uh, DNA testing on the hairs um, that they found proved inconclusive in belonging to Raymond, and they belonged to two different people anyway. So, And there were no roots in the hair. So they probably were not pulled out like during a struggle, but they just fell off of somebody's head while they were doing laundry. Um, so basically those hairs most likely have nothing to do with the attacks. The affair theory could not be confirmed or denied because Susan can't remember anything and Raymond's not saying anything. And even if Susan did remember, she's certainly not going to share that tidbit of information, I'm sure, because she's still with her husband. Uh, but Nicole knew Raymond And it's believed that she would know that it was Raymond. The description that she gave to police initially did not match Raymond. And she actually saw Raymond after the brutal attack of her mother. And she never expressed any signs of distress or being scared of him in any way. The four witnesses who testified at trial who claimed that they overheard Raymond um, were drug users and they might have gotten sweet, sweet deals to testify against him. So ever so slowly, the Innocence Project poked holes in the case and it is for those reasons that a Supreme Court judge reversed Raymond's sentence after he had served 23 years. Um, He was retried. But due to lack of evidence and many of their witnesses from the first trial having passed since it happened, um, he was released on supervision for the remainder of his days. Another thing of note is that at Doreen's funeral, a man named Don Dugas attended the funeral. Nicole's grandmother said that upon seeing the man, Nicole whispered to her, I think that's the man who boomed mama. It's also interesting that after surgery, Susan was able to talk for a few moments before she was 
before she slipped into a coma, and police officers asked her to tell them who had done this to her, and Susan was able to give them several letters in Dugas' name. Later, when she made some progress, they read her a list of random names, and Susan couldn't really talk very well, so they just said, nod if we say the man who harmed you. When they said Don Dugas' name, Susan nodded, but then she went into a coma. But when Susan made a full recovery, she had no recollection of ever being questioned. It has been 39 years since this heinous crime was committed. Both men, Raymond and Dugast, are dead. Susan still has no memory of her attack, and we're still no closer to justice than we were on February 19, 1982. Now we move on to our second case. This is the case of a man who makes a living by getting married to unsuspecting women over and over and over again. He is known as the heart attacker or Con Juan. So far, he has wed nearly a dozen women that we know of and has extorted them out of over a million dollars. And I mean, I don't know what I thought he was going to look like. I thought maybe he'd be like very suave and like Zac Efron looking or Idris Elba looking, um, but I saw a picture of him and I don't really know how he could be known as the heart attacker. Like, how could he get so many women to fall in love with him? He's no Bradley Cooper, I can tell you that much. He looks like the video game character Mario brought to life, but whatevs. The heart wants what it wants, I guess. There's somebody for everybody, and apparently there's a dozen women for Con Juan. Picture this. New York City, 1981. Louis Carlucci arrives in the suburb of Forest Hills, carrying nothing but a garment bag. In it is his only good suit. In this affluent community, he was a stranger, a nobody. Which I feel couldn't really happen now, but back in the 80s, man, you could go off the grid so easily. Lewis found work as a short order cook at a local restaurant. In September, Lewis met a 41-year-old woman who wants to be known as Barbara in the episode, although it's not her real name. The two meet at a local bar, and seven weeks later, they are married. Mormon style. (laughs) What Barbara didn't know is that Lewis was a con man who would first steal her heart and then her money. Lewis is known to have married nine different wives and fathered over 30 children. Barbara says, and I should mention that her voice has been digitally altered, she says, When you try to explain to someone what happened, they look at you and say, well, how could you get taken like that? And then you find out there are 500 other people that were taken the same way, or was supposed to be as brilliant or small. Barbara was the only one of Carlucci's victims who had talked to us. She asked that she not be identified on camera, and at one time she feared reprisals from Carlucci. But the fact that he's still roaming someplace in the United States and getting away with this is a terrible thought. Now Robbie is back. Yay! And he's gotten rid of that horrible toddler Easter outfit. Double yay! Um, He tells us that although Barbara still fears reprisals, she wants to warn other women about Louis Carlucci. Now we'll go through how Carlucci goes about his process, referred to by police as marriage swindles. 
Carlucci typically finds his victims in restaurants and friendship clubs. What's a friendship club? I want to go to one. I think we all should go to one after this year of isolation and social depravity that we've all endured. Am I right? But seriously, is there a friendship club near me? Barbara said she was out with a friend when Carlucci sent over two drinks and came over to talk to them. At first, Barbara didn't think much of him. She slams him a bit, which I'm all here for. I love the shade that she's throwing his way. First impression when I first saw him, no style, no class. But Barbara says that the more that she got to know him and the more that she talked to him, she really enjoyed his company. So when he asked her to marry him, she thought, why not? Why not? Barbara, because you've only known him six weeks. That's why. Their wedding was held at the bar where they first met, which at first glance is actually pretty cute. But you know that he played it up like, Barb, wouldn't it be so sweet if we got married at the bar where we met? But really, he had ulterior motives. And that was that he didn't want to spend too much money on the wedding because that's all he was there for. He wanted to save as much as he could for himself. But that pretend faux tenderness didn't last long. Immediately after the wedding, like immediately their relationship turned sour. Starting at the wedding reception, Carlucci would get angry whenever Barbara talked to their guests. After the honeymoon, they moved into this unfurnished apartment and they lived out of suitcases. They had like no furniture. Carlucci would not let Barbara out of his sight. He paid for their living expenses using Barbara's credit cards. I couldn't turn my head. He'd pull my hair. If I looked the wrong way, I'd get smacked. Because I couldn't talk to anyone at all. And if we were in a restaurant, I couldn't even order anything from the waitress because he felt like I was looking at the person to signal or whatever. Carlucci used Barbara's credit cards until they reached their limits. He drained her bank accounts. Carlucci bled Barbara dry. Eventually, while in the bathroom alone, she realizes that she's never going to be able to escape this fate. So she is about to commit suicide when Carlucci walks in and essentially releases her from this living hell that he's put her in. After draining Barbara out of $20,000, Carlucci no longer has use for her. So on May 13th, six months after the pair married, he left her life as quickly as he entered it. Encouraged by friends, Barbara filed charges with the police. Carlucci doesn't just leave physical and financial carnage. It's also very much psychological. I love the 80s because they're just so naive, but they bring this up in such a way that it's like this unbelievable revelation. Now we know, obviously, yeah, there would certainly be some psychological damage going on, but back then they were like, the victim was basically a prisoner for six months in her own home, and once you know, she was like psychologically scarred by that. Huh, isn't that phenomenal? Yeah, no crap. Barbara wants to see Carlucci get caught. She says he needs to be taken off the street and that he doesn't belong in society. Police tracked him all over the United States. They have record of him in California, Las Vegas, New Orleans, Florida, New Jersey, New York. He moved around constantly to avoid detection. Police say he's wanted for bigamy, which is marrying more than one person, grand larceny, and fraud. Based on his pattern of behavior, police believe that he had to be with a woman at the very moment that the episode was released. It was projected that he was with about 10 to 15 women per year. 
Mind you, he doesn't always marry the women. Sometimes he pretends to be purchasing a posh restaurant in the area and he just like seeks out investments from the women. When he gets the cash, he splits. But sometimes, if that doesn't work, he'll marry the women to access their funds more quickly. This is how they believed Carlucci made his living, by being a parasite and sucking the funds out of his unsuspecting victims. It was the conjecture of the police that he would never stop, at least not until he was caught. And breaking news, he was caught twice thanks to viewers' tips. When this episode first came out, a couple in Nashville, Tennessee contacted the show. Carlucci was extradited back to New York and released on bail while he waited for his pending trial. But the heartbreaker escaped. Silly judge. Bales are for kids. Disappearing into thin air like he's good at doing. Once again, after being featured on a secondary episode, a viewer's tip led to his arrest. This time in Los Angeles. After serving only four years in prison, Louis Carlucci was released under supervised custody. And he has since passed away. I know this case is mostly about fraud, abuse, bigamy, and a con, but let it also be a lesson to us as friends that if your friend who used to talk to you like all the time suddenly becomes very isolated and withdrawn after starting a new relationship or getting married, take note of that. And if it continues, check up on it. Send someone over to do a well check. Make it your mission to see if they're okay. You might just save someone who means so much to you. Now we move on to our third case, The Desperate Housewife of Wellsville, Pennsylvania. In 1986, 43-year-old housewife Diane Broadbeck was doing what Pennsylvania housewives do, I guess. She was married to her husband for 25 years, she popped out a couple of kids, and dedicated her life to volunteering at her local church for the better part of 20 years. On April 5th, 1986, Diane disappeared. A month later, her abandoned car was found in a motel parking lot 30 minutes away from her home. In the trunk, the police found her overnight bag. On the same day Diane went missing, John Yount, a long-term inmate at a local prison, escaped. Yount was serving a life sentence for the brutal slaying of an 18-year-old schoolgirl. At the exact time he escaped, Diane was seen driving along the same country road where John Yount vanished. I don't know if Diane's alive. I hope she's alive. I really do. I believe personally that she is alive. And I think she is with John. At the time of the episode, Diane and John had both been missing for about two years. The authorities believe that Diane may have been Yount's accomplice. But I'm brought back to the overnight bag. What woman ditches her overnight bag filled with her personal belongings, makeup, jewelry, clothes, etc. if she really was on the run? She wouldn't want to risk going into a store and buying all that crap over again. And, as a housewife myself, you know I'm not going anywhere further than my mailbox without putting makeup on. Well, as of late, I have been going a bit further than that, seeing as we can wear masks and sunglasses. But my Puerto Rican ancestors would roll over in their graves if I ever left my house with at least lipstick and a little bit of mascara on. Diane's family is mystified. They believe that Diane was not an accomplice. She was kidnapped. I know my daughter. She would not deliberately help a convicted murderer escape from prison. My daughter would not do this. Yes, I think that my wife probably did help John Yacht get out of jail. Under pressure, for what reason, I don't know. 
It's hard to say. She could have been threatened by John Yout. I don't know what happened. I really don't. Well, at least Mama doesn't think that Diane would be involved. So, Mom's like, no way. Another instance of a mom on Unsolved Mysteries who thinks she knows her daughter and doesn't. Shocker. And Diane's husband, Chester. Chester! Is like, yeah, totally. I think she did it. So, conflicting beliefs here by probably some of the two closest people to Diane. Diane and her husband had just celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary. They had two, like, older daughters, like, in their teens and early 20s, which I kind of find hard to believe that she would abandon them. Husband, yeah, heck. I mean, even he thinks that she left him, but my mama heart is telling me that she couldn't abandon her babies, right? Diane led a busy life. She worked as a bank manager. She pursued interest in psychology, volunteered at her church, and among her various service endeavors, she wrote to inmates who had no family or friends. Aha, light bulb. Now things are beginning to make a bit more sense. At first I was like, under what circumstances would this Pennsylvania housewife who goes to church a lot and this inmate like even met? But plot twist. In 1966, John Yout was a popular math teacher at a local high school. On his way home from work, he came across one of his students, Pamela Sue Reimer, walking home from school. It was a bit chilly that day, so he took the opportunity to offer her a ride home. At first, she was like, no, 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 it's okay. I only live a block or two up the road. And she didn't like want to inconvenience him or something. But with his persistence, she eventually thanked him for the ride and got in. Later that afternoon, Pamela's body was discovered. She had been badly beaten with a wrench raped and her throat had been cut. The next day, John confessed to everything. He was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. 16 years later, John began writing to Diane. Hi, my precious lady. I wanted you to be close to me so much today. I hope my enjoyment and adoration of you is an incentive to be the best you can. You are a classy lady. I miss you. Diane's sister, Faye Snyder, said that the two were introduced by a mutual friend. Apparently, one of Diane's friends through the same program had been visiting John for quite some time in prison, but her friend was moving and she would no longer be able to visit with him. Her friend expressed to Diane that she didn't want him to be up there at the prison all alone, so Diane agreed to take over for her. She saw it as an extension of what she was already doing, writing letters to out-of-state inmates, but now she would have the opportunity to um, meet with this person in person. This part was a little bit new to her. Faye says that Diane was just always thinking of other people and that she was a people person. After 20 years behind bars, John had become a model prisoner. He played organ in the church choir, he mastered computer programming, and he taught at the prison school. He was well-liked by guards and inmates. John was described as a very persuasive person. The police warden said that John probably had the ability to persuade anybody of anything, 
given the opportunity to do so. He had a skill in being able to manipulate people. It didn't help that on the surface, he seems like harmless and intelligent and charming almost, but psychopaths are good at mimicking these emotions and behaviors. It's how they're so good at staying undetected for so long. It's a skill that they've strengthened for survival purposes. Diane began making weekly visits to the prison. She even continues these visits when John is transferred to a prison over two hours away from her home. Diane came to see John Yance every week. She never missed. It was regular. Just this week after week. She was his girlfriend, definitely. They were, it was not a casual visit like her brother and sister visiting. When they started their visit, they would embrace and kiss, and the same when they left which is really all it's permitted during a visit. It would appear that this desperate housewife fell in love with John. Her sister had no idea that they were romantically involved. She says Diane never confided this dirty little secret with her. She had everyone in her close circle fooled. John tried adamantly to get released. Finally, he made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which denied his release, which is really the most you can do. In February 1985, John wrote Diane again, and pardon the fox and the hound wannabe soundtrack playing over these sappy love letters. You know I wasn't going to ignore that. I don't even know why they chose it. If I was breaking up with Unsolved Mysteries, I'd use the line, it's not me, it's you, get some better music. Be my valentine, love. Forever. You are my heart. I hope more than anything that this is the last Valentine Day that we will spend apart. On April 5th, 1986, John escaped. John's model behavior had earned him the right to work unsupervised outside of the prison fence. The uh, morning of the escape, John was to go out and cut some hay. All you have to do is take this hay wagon down to the garden barn. He was told specifically by the supervisor what he was supposed to do, took the other men to their particular areas, and then made his rounds. That was the last time John was ever seen. A security guard from the prison just happened to be driving on a nearby road, like on his way to a bowling alley, about a mile or two from where John was supposed to be working when a car passed him going the opposite direction. He turned his head and thought the woman, I mean, he says girl, but I'm going to say woman because she was like 40, was like familiar. Later on, he realized it was John's girlfriend, and he thought, why would John's girlfriend be all the way out here? That was the last time Diane was ever seen. Police went to Diane's home to speak with her husband. When the troopers came to my door on Sunday, wanting to know where my wife was, saying that Yout had been broken out of prison by someone, thinking it was her, as far as I was concerned, they were completely wrong. She had nothing to do with it. I thought that she had gone to Williamsburg, Virginia, and I believed that until Monday or Tuesday when she did not return. Is it just me, or does her husband seem, like, all too happy to have Diane gone? Not that I think he had anything to do with her disappearance, but just, like, he's kind of approaching the situation in a good riddance, I wanted to divorce you anyways type of demeanor. Either way, he doesn't really seem too torn or heartbroken. So we learned that a week before Diane went missing, she withdrew $7,500 from a secret bank account. 
she hid a secret car in a storage unit. It was also discovered that the night before the two went missing, John placed a call to Diane, which lasted 14 minutes. They decided to charge Diane with being an accomplice to the escape. This made Diane's mom and sister kind of ticked. They believe that Diane has a strong moral compass and to help a prisoner escape prison would not be along the lines of something that they thought their sister and daughter would do. While I don't agree that she didn't help, I definitely think that she did. And I think that that's evident in all the things she was doing leading up to the disappearance, the secret relationship, the secret car, the secret bank account. I'm still not convinced that she wasn't being used by John. I think it's definitely possible that John manipulated her into falling in love with him so he could use her to get out of prison. After they had a good time together in the motel room, he would have no further use for her and would kill her and then abandon the car with her personal effects inside. At this point in time, while I'm hopeful that she's not dead, I think she might be. I just cannot see someone like John, letting her live. The police remind us that they found her car about 20 miles from her home, but this time they include a unique and kind of weird detail. They tell us that along with her cosmetics, there were like 30 pairs of lacy underwear in her overnight bag. Okay, guys, let's keep this profesh. The guy had been in prison for 23 years. You don't think any sexy times are going on here? I mean, it's kind of common sense. A bag was found in the trunk containing Diane's personal items, jewelry, cosmetics, and over a dozen pairs of underwear. Sorry, guys. I just couldn't resist playing a clip of Robert Stack saying a dozen pair of underwear. It's like a twisted Unsolved Mysteries Mother Goose rhyme. So there's obviously the theory I just talked to you about with John using Diane and then offing her, but there's also another theory. The other theory is that she really loved him, and he really loved her. That theory is one that I hold. I believe she is with him. Well, my wife has run off with another man. Or it's for sure I do not like it. That's for sure, you know. We were married for 25 years, and I thought they were fairly good years, you know. And as I told many people, she didn't leave just me. She left the whole family. I don't think she's alive because I think if she is, she would contact somebody in the family. Okay, so now Chester seems a little bit sad, so I kind of feel bad about what I said about him earlier. But at first, her husband says he thinks his wife ran off with another man and he doesn't seem too angry about it, but now he changes his tune. He believes that she is not alive. He thinks if she was, she would contact someone in her family, like her sister or one of their daughters. He doesn't believe that she, that she would just abandon them. Police want to send a message to Diane, if she is alive, that John is dangerous. I mean, he killed a teenager at one time in cold blood and that he could easily do that again. They want Diane to know that she should 100% fear for her life if she is still with him. They believe John will kill again. It's not a matter of if, but when. Breaking news. Do, 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 After all this time, we have an update on John Yount and Diane Broadbeck. Robert? Update. John Yount and Diane Broadbeck have been captured. Two of our viewers in Boise, Idaho, recognized Broadbeck as a former co-worker, Kathy Kerman. When they showed the picture, it was Kathy's face, obviously. 
And once they said she was a bank manager and it was from Massachusetts, and they said that uh, John's uh, background was in computers, it was a dead giveaway. The Humphreys called the FBI, and after a month-long investigation, the fugitive couple was arrested at their home. He seemed a little surprised for a minute, and he put his hands up in the air. He, he didn't look around or anything, really. He sort of, I think he had his eyes on the guy with the gun. Gotcha! But seriously, in all seriousness, I am shocked. This really was a plot twist for me. I thought for sure she would be dead, especially with that overnight bag just abandoned not that I wanted her to be but yeah I just couldn't believe that she left her children mom and sister behind like that but granted she's a different person now before she left her life she was gorgeous she was giving me those princess diana vibes but in her mugshot oh boy she's looking cray cray she has like these beady little druggy eyes and looks like a typical psycho lady in a thriller film John Yacht returned to prison to serve the remainder of his life sentence. Diane served two years for helping John escape. In an article posted at the Daily Collegian written in 1988, Diane says she can't believe she could be so stupid. I guess hindsight really is 2020. She says that she made a big mistake and wants to put this whole phase of her life behind her. I don't really feel bad for her. For making the choice to help John. What I do feel sorry about is the fact that she missed out on a lot of things while she was gone in her children's lives that she will never be able to get back. She missed the wedding of one of her daughters and the birth of her only grandchild at the time. These are monumental moments in her children's lives that she will never be able to get back. And she really doesn't have anyone to blame but herself. But what was the motivation for falling in love with the felon? Like, how did that even happen? In the article, it claims that, quote, she was going through a difficult time in her life, McGowan said after taking the plea. Her children had grown up and didn't need her any longer. She wasn't getting the love and affection at home that she needed or wanted. And she was very attracted to John. John gave her the attention that she needed at that point in her life, end quote. Also, I learned that Diane's husband, Chester, not only bailed her out of prison, was by her side during all of the court proceedings, but that he took her back after she got out. Wow. Chester, I can't believe if you're just chivalrous or a big old dummy. Chester and Diane stay together until his passing in 1995. She has now remarried and has taken her new husband's last name. Her grandson posted on a Reddit theory a few years back and says it's no secret what his Nan did. They all know it as that one time Nan went crazy and broke a man out of prison. Diane and her late husband Chester will share a headstone. She is now 75 years old and living somewhere in Pennsylvania. John Yant has since died. He actually committed suicide in his cell a few years ago at the age of 74. There are some Yant supporters uh, that think John was overly sentenced. They feel like he should have been released and that, quote, an act you commit when you are 27 years old should not dictate the rest of your life, end quote, which, no. No, 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 no. It absolutely should. When you viciously rape and murder one of your students, it absolutely should dictate the rest of your life, especially when you're 27. It's not like you're 13 years old. Give me a break. Diane argues that she didn't know much about the crime, and I honestly 
believe her. It's not like there was Google back in the day. I don't know how easy it was to access prison records back then. So yeah, I mean, I absolutely believe that she would only know whatever John chose to disclose with her, which I'm guessing probably wasn't very much. Also, something tragic I learned was that Pamela, this is the student that John raped and killed, had been actively trying to get out of Yant's math class. She told her mom, quote, if you could only see the way he looks at me in class, mom, I'm afraid of his eyes, end quote. But the show doesn't really refer or get into any of this. I really, really wish that they would have interviewed Pamela's mother. I feel like that was a real disservice in this episode to Pamela. Apparently three years before Pamela's murder, her older brother died in a tragic trailer accident. So Pamela's mom in the span of three years went from having two children who she loved more than anything to none. She was quoted as saying, quote, the day he, she's talking about Yant, took my daughter's life. He also robbed my husband and I of ours. My husband is now deceased and I have no children, no grandchildren, no one to call and ask me how I'm doing, no one I can really rely on. He absolutely deserves to live in a prison. I do. So why shouldn't he? End quote. So there you have it. But let this be a lesson to you and to me who may be approaching or already arrived at midlife Don't go falling in love with a prisoner and don't go helping them escape. Buy a souped up little sports car instead or go eat, pray, love it up some faraway country like a normal person. Our last and final case is a real life treasure hunt that has eluded treasure hunters for over a century. In 1821, Thomas J. Bill wrote about a huge fortune that he had buried in the hills of Bedford, Virginia. According to the legend, there is $21 million worth of gold, silver, and jewels adjusted for inflation, um, but that was 1986, so I looked up what it would be now, and now the treasure would be worth a little over $50 million. For over 100 years, treasure hunters from all over have come to the hills of Bedford in search of their chance to find it. So far, no one has. Treasure hunters have been searching for clues from all of the writing that he has done on it. One man said, since it was such a huge allotment of gold, silver, and rubies, you would have needed at least two wagons to transport it, if not more. So he feels that that can help him to narrow down the location. A local judge says that sooner or later, somebody is going to find it. And what a great day for them when they do. The legend of Beale's fortune begins in the early 1800s in New Mexico. Thomas Beale and a team of diggers found the fortune. They then brought it back to Virginia where it's said he buried it. He left written directions on how to find the treasure in the form of three secret codes or ciphers. Then, apparently, he went back to New Mexico and disappeared, never reclaiming his treasure. In 1869, a man deciphered one of the letters using the Declaration of Independence as a key, some real national treasure-ish. He numbered the first letter of every word in the declaration and assigned that a letter. Then, using that key, he decoded the message. The message read, I have deposited in the county of Bedford in an excavation or vault six feet below the surface of the ground. 
5,100 pounds of silver. In the final letter, the location of the treasure is supposedly revealed, although nobody's really deciphered that letter yet. Whoever deciphers this letter will find the secret vault roughly the size of two Royals Royces. Those are Robbie's words, not mine. I'm not that lame, but don't worry, Robbie. I'm not going to hold it against you. Many who know of the legend are convinced that one day, maybe sometime soon, maybe far off into the future, somebody is going to strike it rich. Two brothers, Eddie and Joe Tony, and their father-in-law, Earl Boggs, have spent nine years searching for the treasure. They say they have broken the cipher. In the cipher, there are five geographical points that lead you to the treasure. They are currently working on finding the fifth and final clue. We only have one more point to go, and we've verified each place we found something that he left and degrees and the footage and paces came out exactly. If we can't find this fifth point after finding four, there's something bad wrong. I'm confident that we'll find it. I love how he says there's something bad wrong. I love that. I might start using it. It's hilarious. Um, On air, they supposedly find the final clue. Yeah, okay, I'm sure. We know what the last degree is to go. I'm uh, a little shaky right now on account of it because I could, uh, I know there's not enough time to, today to go do it. Well, when the metal detector went off, I got excited. And it's hard to explain how exciting you do get. And you imagine a gold down in there behind them rocks. And my heart felt like it come up in my throat. Not enough time and not enough money. Isn't that the case for us all? Uh, The Tony brothers and their father-in-law end up having to pack up and go home so that they can earn some more money to continue their endeavors because they've run out of money for now. Meanwhile, in a completely different part of Bedford Hills, Wilbur Swift from Garden Grove, California, is also searching for the treasure. He thinks he hasn't covered the last letter, the final cipher, $20,000 later, and he's still searching for the treasure. Wilbur says that the cipher described a huge boulder made out of a very specific type of rock that appeared to have a face on it, and he located it, supposedly. Because the letter also said to find the rock and start digging, but the letter said to only dig six feet, and Wilbur has already paid an excavation crew to dig nearly 24 feet, and uh, still no treasure. Imagine that. Uh, this, this excavator is making bank digging for these people. In the last 20 years, he says that he's been paid to dig for 20 to 25 different people. He has essentially made a business digging for people who all claim to know exactly where the treasure is. And uh, when you start digging for them, there was always just two feet away from it. I don't care how deep in the ground you went, it still it was two feet deeper than what you... Uh... Doug. Wilbur says that they still don't have too far to go. Then they have a meeting for some local residents who seem to have a good time picking on the silly people that come out and try and find the treasure. They all hope that the treasure ends up being on their property. Many believe that Beale took it with him to New Mexico. They wonder why he would leave it and doubt that he would. And that makes me think, if the treasure hunters are able to locate the treasure, but it's on someone else's property, who gets it? 
I mean, I'm assuming that it'd either be the property owners all the way, or the treasure hunters would at least have to share the majority of it with a property owner. I don't know. I think that there's probably no way that the treasure hunters are getting any of it unless they cut a deal with the property owner before they start digging. Something like, hey, if we fund the excavation and we find something, you've got to give us half or like 40% or whatever. Get that ish written down too and notarized. A German scientist has used his computer. Guys, this was the 80s, so computers were like a really big deal, so they're making it a really big deal in this episode. Um, And he apparently used his big fancy computer to attempt to determine if the code was real. Like, are these ciphers even real? Are they a hoax? Upon further review, it was his opinion that they were, in fact, not random numbers and that there may be some truth to this ciphering stuff yet. My wife is back in California, and some of the neighbors say, hey, where's Wilbur? I I don't think any of them take it serious. Well, uh, he who laughs last, laughs best. And uh, I, I believe that one of these days I might get the last laugh. Wilbur, Wilbur, Wilbur. Poor Wilbur. Is that a real phrase, by the way, that he used? Those who laugh last, laugh best? I've never heard of that before. But you know what? Good on Wilbur's wife for sticking it out to see if that money actually comes through before terminating that marriage. (laughs) Wouldn't that suck if she filed for divorce and he found the treasure like the next day? But uh, the Tony brothers think that they're going to be the ones that find it first. So will it be the Tony brothers for the win or Wilbur? Or will someone else come and swoop in and get it? I looked into this case to see if any updates had been made as the episode didn't mention any and there really hasn't been any progress. So unfortunately, the Tony brothers and Wilbur must not have had any luck. The only thing I really found was that many believe that not only is the treasure a hoax, but that the guy, oh my gosh, what was his name? Beale something. The guy who uncovered the treasure and buried it. Some people don't even think he's real because when he supposedly left for New Mexico, he gave this friend, in quotes, a letter that do not open for 10 years. That's what it said on it. The friend supposedly waited 10 years, couldn't figure out the ciphers, so he decided to print them out in a pamphlet and sell them for 50 cents a piece. 50 cents back then would be about $13.50 now, so some believe it was all a hoax concocted by some guy, and while everyone was running around digging for fake treasure, this dude was laughing his way to the bank. And that he might even be laughing in his grave today because there are still people looking for it now. Robbie also wants to remind everyone that unauthorized digging in Bedford Hills is illegal and you will be arrested. So, if you feel like joining the hunt for this treasure, please keep that in mind. And that's the episode. What do you guys make of these four cases? Did any of them strike a chord with you or stick with you? Do you have any theories about any of the cases that we've discussed? Are you on your way to packing a bag and going to Bedford Hills so that you can find the treasure? If so, be sure to visit our Instagram account and comment on the post that I left today. I'd love to hear your thoughts, opinions, and ideas about today's episode. Join me next week when together we'll discover... Did anyone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved? Mm